What am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. You got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up, man. That's my philosophy. Welcome back to Legendary Mindset. I'm your host, Jake P. So when we first started putting this podcast together, I made a, a short list of people that I knew that I absolutely needed to interview, and Norman Coles was one of the first names I had there at the top. And when I first came to Texas and, w- and would hang around goat people, I would hear the name Norman referred to fairly often, um, just casually. I mean, not, and I never really knew much you know, about him or who he was, but I had heard his name and knew that this guy existed. And when I was a freshman at Blinn College, we were practicing reasons. I think it was at Dallas. And I was talking a set of does to Sierra Martin, and she kind of started talking to the, about the does to me, and she described one of the does as stout scold like, in a positive way. And I was just generally curious, and I asked her, you know, why do you want them stout scold? You know, aren't those hard to pull out of their mamas? And she looked at me, like, with condemnation and threw her hands up in the air and said, Norman says, if their head is stout and wide, that so is their pelvic bone, and it does not matter. And then I kind of just sat there and looked at her confused, and she looked at me with this, you know, bless your heart look in her eyes and said, do you, you know, please tell me you know who Norman is. And I, you know, that, that was when I realized how big of a deal this guy was. And um, I met him a few years later when I went to go shear, shear some hair sheep for him. And it was an experience, you know, I'll never forget. Uh, the knowledge and history this guy has is unlike any I've ever seen. I think, um, I think that day I probably asked him a hundred questions. And from then on out, I, I thought extremely highly of him. I'm very excited for you to hear this. I don't know, I don't, it doesn't matter what species you're involved in, or even if it's non-livestock animals, you need to listen to Norman's podcast. This is, this is truly incredible. Let me know what you think. And as you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram, Legendary Mindset Pod, as well as our Facebook page, Legendary Mindset with Jake P, for more content every week. Legendary Mindset with Jake P. El, El Dorado, Texas? No, I grew up in Kendall County. I grew up at Bernie. Bernie? Where's, where's that from here? Just north of San Antonio. Oh, okay. What uh, would your family do? They raise livestock? Yes. My uh, father worked for the Texas Animal Health Commission, first working with the screwworm program and then to help eradicate brucellosis. My mother was always a secretary in town and yeah, we raise sheep, cattle, angora, muttons to keep the cedar down. We had a little, it was pretty diverse. Mm-hmm. Was 4-H a thing back then, or were you <laughs> involved in that at all? Yeah, I was in 4-H from the little on. I actually started, I started showing sheep when I was six because you could take them to the fairs and things in the hill country, and I showed Delane sheep. Mm-hmm. Registered, so I've raised registered sheep since I was uh, six years old. Really? What was yeah. the first breed you raised? Delanes. Delanes. Mm-hmm. What? Are, I don't know if I've seen one of those. Well, they're they were primarily used for the wool, mm-hmm. and they weren't near as big as our Rambolets, so they worked good in the hill country because they didn't take as much to eat, didn't have to have as much maintenance, and uh, lots of people had Delanes mixed with their other sheep, but down in that southern part of the hill country, the lanes were pretty dominant. Mm-hmm. So grew up showing sheep and, and went into high school. What was your plans for college and, and what did you want to do? <laughs> oh, my dad always told me from little on, he said, now if you're going to be in agriculture, you're going to go to A&M. You have to get a college degree and that's where you're going. Mm-hmm. 
and there wasn't any discussion. I didn't even know that you could go to another college. <laughs> A&M was the only school that, that there was. That was the only thing we ever talked about. And he said that, you know, an education is freedom. Mm -hmm. And he said it would open all the doors that you can't kick open any other way. Mm -hmm. So I... I always knew I was going to A&M. When I took my SAT test, it had three blanks on it, and it said, where would you like these scores sent? And I put A&M in all three blanks because <laughs> I didn't know to send it anywhere else. <laughs> what, so what would you study? Animal science, yeah. Animal science. Well, did you just want to raise livestock after that, or did you have a career path you wanted <laughs> to take? Or? I thought I was going to go to New Mexico State and work on my master's degree, and then uh, – one of the gentlemen that uh, was a district director for extension called me and said, I have a job for you. And so I took that job and became a county agent and one of the best things I ever did. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when you were at A&M, did you do the livestock judging or participate in that? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I judged wool first. Yeah, I judged that with Frank Craddock and Preston Ferris. And, of course, they didn't need anybody else. Those two were so dominant. They could have won all the contests, but you had to have a couple of names on there with them. <laughs> and uh, then I judged meats, and we won the national meat judging contest the first time in 13 years. And then I judged livestock. How'd livestock so, go? Well, that went pretty good. Preston was uh, the lead dog in that deal, but, you know, we he just didn't have enough help from the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the coach back then? L.D. With. One of the finest guys that ever, ever lived. He, he didn't only coach us to place livestock, but he taught us why they were good, why, why one was good and one wasn't as, as good. And he made us worry about things that were important so that when we got away from A&M, that if we were in a position where we had to do it for ourselves or help somebody, we could. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it, it was a wonderful experience, uh, one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life. Was that probably your first time being educated in an evaluation? Or did you yeah, no, I didn't that? get to do it in, in high school. My, my county agent only wanted to have a wool and mohair team, and I wasn't about to waste my time judging wool and mohair. So there you go. I, I didn't do that. So you graduated from the only... Uh, only school in the world. <laughs> yeah. Went to be a county agent. What, what was the first county? I was in Seguin. And that was a good thing because that county was so diverse. We had hogs. We had cattle. We had uh, pecans, field crops. Uh, it was just a wonderful experience because I had not been expo exposed to row crops at all. Mm -hmm. Down in the hill country, you couldn't make a row of any kind in them rocks, but... Yeah, I remember I got in a cotton field one time, and I said, it was tall, tall cotton, not like we see now. I said, how are we going to get out of here? And, and the other county agent said, just look down and follow the row. It'll take you to the end of the field. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea how to get out of there. <laughs> like a corn maze. Yeah, it was worse than that. So you went from Seguin, and then I went Then I went to Gonzales. Okay. And that's a big, big cattle county, and that was a great experience, too, because we raised a lot of coastal Bermuda, and we overtopped it in the wintertime with oats and ryegrass and clover, and that was a brand-new experience for me as well. And and uh, I don't know how many 
steers we grew in that county, but commercially they probably had 10, 15,000 steers running in that county at all times, mm-hmm. no matter what time of the year it was. And then we had, it was big, it was always one of the biggest cow-calf counties. It was either first or it was second, depending on how many cattle were in Houston County at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was great. I mean, the first year, the people had to kind of get to know me, but the second year, I bought 75 bulls at different sales and things for those people to upgrade their cattle, and that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was great. I mean, and I bought a lot of different kinds, too, Charlays and Brahmin bulls and uh, about 50 Hereford bulls to put on those good tiger-striped cows, and uh, that was a great time. Yeah. You're, and then, you're then I, I went from Gonzales to Garden City. You're probably pretty diversified at that point before oh, you ended up in Garden City. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I... <laughs> I can graft pecans. I tell Ryan all the time, my son-in-law, I said, well, you're great. You've judged all over the country. But I said, you haven't judged a state pecan show yet. And I said, I have. So I said, <laughs> I think I'm in the lead. <laughs> I'd say you're right. Yeah. So what was Glasscock County like? Well, that was, that's got the best people in it that you'll ever be around in your whole life. Mm-hmm. I mean, that everything revolves around that Catholic church and uh, down at St. Lawrence and you just can't be around finer people in the whole world than than those people right there. Mm-hmm. How long did you stay there? In Seventeen years I was there. Dang. Yeah. Coached a lot of judging teams, or oh yeah, we we won uh, we won three trips to the national 4-H contests. Dang. I took the first team to Denver, the second team to Kansas City, the third team to Louisville. So. You know, to win Louisville, you had to win the – I mean, get the trip to Louisville, you had to win the state contest first. So mm-hmm. we won the state contest that year, and then we went to Louisville. And that was a that was a brand-new experience for me, too, because there we had to use numbers and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. that was, was different. Was this kind of unrelated, but was, was Chuck Real coaching back then when you were coaching? Oh, yeah. At the same time? Oh, yeah. Because he's pretty, he's very good at it. <laughs> oh, he's he's one of the best. And the best thing about Chuck is he's so dedicated to our next, what I call the next generation. Mm-hmm. He has given his life to uh, those kids to make them uh, outstanding for, uh, you know, that just carries all the rest of their life. Oh, yeah. He just gives of himself all the time. So, super guy. What was the most rewarding part about coaching those teams and being an agent? For those 17 years, you'd say? I, I, I think it's just uh, watching them learn how to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm not one of these that advocates that everybody ought to get a prize and everybody gets a button or a ribbon just because they showed up. I mean, I think you ought to have to earn that. And uh, then once you've learned how to play the game, then, it, then can you win? Can you get over that last hurdle? And be the big dog, mm-hmm. you know. And so, that's uh, that was the reward to me. I mean, I had such fine people, and all they needed was a little bit of guidance to to jump that last hurdle, so that they could win. And I mean, not win at one thing. I mean, we won at a lot of different. We won judging. We we had the champion Barrett, San Antonio champion Barrett Houston. Uh, we won the open show bears at at Fort Worth. Uh, 
we just had dominance. we we just had a lot of success uh, when we showed breeding stock out there in terms of the hog barn we had a lot of success there and showing chesters and hampshires and so that was a lot of fun and and it's just seeing them you know realize that was just not hard work, but but hard work done the right way, you can be a success. Mm-hmm. You can work your ass off, but if you're not doing it the right way, you're gonna get kicked and stomped again with just a little bit of guidance, then you have a chance to be a success. And to watch those kids, and now, and now I see I've looked, I look back and I watch them as parents, and now <laughs> as old as I am, I get to see them as grandparents, and and I see their kids and their grandchildren still accomplishing so much. Uh, then I know that that was time well spent. I, you know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have spent my time any better than doing that. For sure. Yeah. It's profound. I mean, it's sound. I've heard stuff like that a hundred times, but it just sounds so different coming from you, Norman. <laughs> it sounds, you know. So you, you kind of talked about. You know the generations of people that you've seen grow up there's quite a few of those families and, and people you coached throughout the years that are still in the business and very very successful i mean raising stock and oh yeah there's you know you, you can look at some of them that are raising hogs out there and they're doing real good and some of them are raising some cattle now and, and those cattle are pretty darn good and uh you know the the champion uh bred known female uh, angus last year uh at uh, uh, Dallas, that came right out of that county. They raised it. I had him on my judging team when he was little. I didn't get to judge him when he was older, cause I and on the senior level. And then uh, they've had the champion Barrett Houston since I left, and that was the next generation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I just, I just see those things, and it just gives me great pride to know that I you know even touch their lives a little to give that give them that inspiration to want to be a success Mm -hmm. you know you you got to have that internally you know your head and your heart have to be hooked together and if they aren't you can't make it It won't work i love that yeah so was your fam- did you raise your family and your girls there in garden city i did until uh the girls got in high school and then we moved here because uh, that's what, about the time I went and got the boar goats from Africa. And I, I, I needed to move from there because I had raised that whole bunch, and now th- my former 4-H'ers were starting to have kids just about old enough to be in 4-H, and I needed to get from there so that they could get some exposure to some other people mm-hmm. and some other thoughts and not, not hear the same stories again that I had already told their parents. You know, so we needed to do something different. So I came here, and uh, that was about the time uh, the two youngest ones were in high school. Yeah. You you kind of dropped my next question topic like pretty casually there, but you went and got the boar goats from Africa. Let's talk about that. Well, you know, there again, it's because of my kids mm-hmm. that every time we went somewhere. When we came home, we had a damn goat on the floorboard and tied in a toe sack. And one day I looked out there in the pen, I had more goats in the pen than I had sheep that they were showing. And then I heard as we were 
at a meeting that the boar goats were going to come available to the world. And I had seen two pictures in my life of the boar goats, one while we were in college and one when uh, Dr. Ingdahl went over to uh, South Africa. He had one picture of two goats standing kind of facing away from you, and they were just jammed up with real muscle. I said, now that, now, you know, that that would work. Yeah. Then when I heard they were coming available, well, my wife figured out how I could get to New Zealand and see them because I thought you had to take the space shuttle to get to New Zealand. If you look at, if you look at it uh, where it is on the world map, I mean that that looks a long ways mm -hmm. from the house. It's a long walk. Yeah, and so I went over there, and on that trip I went met uh, Jurgen Schulz, who is the world's largest importer and exporter of exotics, and we became friends and. He helped me get those first ones over here, thank goodness. And so that that started it. And then I went to Australia several times. And then finally, I went to South Africa four times. And so we got some good goats over here. And uh, they they set the stage, you know, for everything that's happened in the go in the commercial goat business uh, because when I went and got the boar goats, it was just when the incentive program was dropped mm -hmm. and our my friends needed goats on their ranches but they needed goats that would still make some money so we took the you know the boar goats and crossed them to everything we crossed them to angoras and spanish goats and you name it all the all the milk breeds we crossed them with all of them and consequently all of a sudden, the goats at the market didn't bring twenty-five or thirty-five dollars. That's all you ever got for a goat kid at the market. That that was that was standard. You bought them by the head. All of a sudden, we were selling goats by the pound. Well, when you start selling goats by the pound, then we got into the real world. And so, when we started that, that was uh, that was a benefit to all my friends. Yeah. When when we changed the whole marketing scheme to price per pound, well, that that changed a whole lot of things for everybody so now people that raise 10,000 angoras could raise 10,000 meat goats mm -hmm. and still make a substantial amount of income and they had the goats so that they had brush control mm -hmm. because the goat the goat is our number one uh, conservation tool for uh, you know for improving our ranches because they eat over their head as many times as they eat on the ground so if we got them sound and we got them tough and we got them durable, well, they're just nothing but a benefit to all of us. So, I mean, we've, we've got goats here and we got dopper sheep and we got red Angus cattle and because it, that's what the mix should be out here on this plateau. We don't, have, we don't put all our eggs in one basket. So we've got a combination and a lot of ranchers have the combination of all three and that's they're the ones that are going to do the best on their ranch. They're the ones that are going to have the most healthy environment that you can on the ranch for all your livestock. So it was important to bring the boar goats at the time, and the, and the changes they brought to the whole industry was good. And so that's that's one more positive thing I've done in my life that I'm you know I'm I'm real proud that. I got to do that. But I brought them over here because of the girls. The girls wanted to show goats all of a sudden, and there was one show to go to, and all we had was those milk goats to pick from. And 
then that really changed when we went and got the boar goats. Well, <laughs> then, you know, and then all of a sudden, it, you know, this showing was the real deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's let's talk more about that. So what what year was it the first time you went over there? Ninety three. Ninety three. Yeah. And how many did you start with in those first? Couple Here, years? I brought in eight little. Uh, I I brought in embryos. What it did and hatched eight little baby goats, mm-hmm. doe kids. I don't remember how many buck kids I had, but I had eight doe kids, and that's so that's what that was my start. Mm-hmm. And then uh, ultimately, I got to uh, help with that import that Jurgen Schultz brought over from Africa, which will be the only import that'll ever be. But we brought uh, I can't remember 400 does and a few billies because you had to pa- pass all these tests, all these blood tests, and they and not all the goats would pass. We had bought 1,100, and uh, so you see how few actually what a low percentage we got through all the blood tests to bring over here but they were really good and uh, fortunately captain was on that load and he set the stage for all of the females the really great females that were in the breed mm-hmm. let's talk about captain so well, how did he get his name Can I- <laughs> Let's hear that story. Well, I saw him early on when I went over there and the man wouldn't sell him. And so when we got ready to make this import, I told Tolly, who was helping me, I said, listen, we got everything but a great billy goat. We don't have a great herd sire. We got some nice herd sires and we'll be able to mix and match, but we don't have a great one. And he said, well, what are we going to do? And I said, well, he's over there at Andrews. I said, if we can get him bought, that's what we need. And so we went over there and they were harvesting potatoes and so they didn't have their mind on boar goats. And he said, oh, he's back there behind the barn. Go look at him. If you want him, we'll make a deal. Well, that's mm-hmm. a lot better than the first time. So I told Tolly, I said, well, I'm going to go back there and pretend like I'm looking at him because I already know I want to buy him. You make a deal while I'm gone. You two, y'all, y'all talk the same language. So... I went back to his back and I looked at him again and by the time I got back well we had bought him and then he did pass all the blood tests thank goodness and uh, especially for how much we gave for him and then we brought him over here and then when he sold in the sale at Jurgens, uh, uh Don Smith and I bought him together and we kept him and uh he didn't live too long, he, about a year, and he died. So, but you got to use him. Got yeah, and then there was a lot of doe kids born out of him already over there, and they sold also. So his genetics got really dispersed across the industry in a hurry. And luckily, luckily he was that good, too, because those females were great. They were great mothers, and, and uh, they really set the stage for the backbone of the boar goats mm-hmm. at the time. So you talked about your intentions with the boar goats were to improve, you know, the commercial side of things in the industry here. Did you have anything in your head to where you wanted to raise them for show purposes? I mean, besides for your daughters, but, but, you know, sell breeding stock and, you know, ABGA and all that? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I was the first president of the ABGA. I put helped them put that association together. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was a wild and new experience. I spent eight hours a day on a telephone with all these people that wanted to talk about what we ought to be doing. So anyway, we finally got the association put together and we got it organized. And so it's gone on from there. And then 
Yeah, I always wanted them, the girls to show, and then once I once we had some registered ones, and we got the registered goats into the shows, which was a war every time. Every place we tried to get them in, you know, they said, "Well, we got to see if it's going to be a novelty or is it going to stay. If it stays, we'll let you in." And so it was just one battle after another trying to get them to all the major shows, and now everybody just takes that for granted. They think they think well. All they did is walked up there and said, "Why don't we show boar goats?" And then we had them in the shows. Well, that isn't true. I mean, it, it was it was a lot of promises on our part to make sure that we were going to have enough, that they were going to be happy with what we brought to the shows, and that we we weren't going to just be there and then fly away like some other exotics have done. Yeah. We were going to stay, and that was easy to figure out because we weren't an exotic. I mean, goats are goats; they're meant for consumption by humans and so that was a pretty easy thing i knew they weren't going to just fly away or disappear or whatever and uh anyway they they accepted us and then as you know then we started showing the weathers that came a little later and uh that was a war again you know first they said well you know you got to prove to us that that you're not going to just show a handful of weathers and then there's not going to be any anymore and well you know how big it's gotten oh man it's huge and so we won that war one one show at a time mm-hmm. and uh, i don't know just it's been a good thing it's it's uh little kids love to show them they can be so affectionate and and uh they become like part of the family mm-hmm. And it, it's it's a very good thing for especially the little ones' first projects, uh, get them interested in livestock. And then, of course, when you get a little older, well, it gets pretty damn intense if you think you're going to be in them top five at any major show now. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter what we're talking about either, whether we're talking about pigs or goats or lambs or anything, because we're on the third and fourth generation of people who have shown. Mm-hmm. And so now the intensity is about four times greater. It's in their blood. Yeah, bet. Yeah, I mean, I know all my family, they just hooked. So mm-hmm. that's how it is. Let's jump back for just a second. So what is your ABGA registration number? One. One. Okay. One. That's what I thought. Just wanted to get that out there. <laughs> yeah, number one. So I know you're, you know, what, at, at that point when the ABGA was getting bigger and, and, and the goats were starting to get better, what was your vision on how they, they needed to look? Well, when I was in Africa, you know, we argued about that all the time, the Africans and myself. We, we'd, we'd get in some pretty intense arguments because there's some very good stockmen over there. But they wanted to tell me those billy goats had to look like uh, an old man when they were in that what they call the younger group, which that's under a year. And I said, there is no way. I said, if they look old now... You can't use them. I said, they're too quick in their maturity. They're too damn little, and they're too chunky. I said, it doesn't work like that. I said, a little boy looks like a little girl. You can't tell them apart. And only as they start to mature do they change. And I said, a boy that shaves in the eighth grade ain't going to make much in high school. And I said, and a kid that weighs 300 pounds as a senior in high school when he comes back from college and he weighs 300 pounds and he's been 
lifting weights and he's been running and he's been eating steaks four times a day. I said, he don't look like that senior in high school. I said, that's the goat we're looking for. We're looking for the goat that is a stud when he's two years old. And he, I said, when he's two years old, he don't look like he did when he was eight months old or nine months old. And then if you want pleats on them when they're three and four and five years old, that's fine. Because I said, us old men, our skin starts to sag and we start to have a few pleats of our own. But I said, my, my, son, my grandsons don't have any. I said, their, their skin is slick as a mink. And I said, so you're picking, you're trying to make a baby goat look like a five-year-old goat, and that doesn't work. I said, he ought to have no skin on him. He ought to be just like my kids. And what did they say to that? Oh, they didn't believe that. Well, now, though, one of the best of the best has been to my house in the last two years. And he, he couldn't wait to walk in that door and tell me that their junior champion of the younger, their junior champion was also the senior champion this past year over there at their national show. They have a national show every two years. And so he won as a junior, and now he came back and won as a senior. And he said, you know, he didn't have any skin on him when he was little. He said he looked pretty he looked more like his mama than he looked like his daddy. I said, now nah, y'all might maybe catching on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, learning that trick, yeah. So for those few years after that, or maybe even the next decade, did the boar goats go in the direction you wanted? Or yeah, they yeah, they did. I mean, we had goats that, the first thing I told them is over here, we, we had to have look. We had to have style and balance and look. You know, if we, if we had a doe and she walked into class, the moment her head came through the gate, you had to know that was a doe. Mm -hmm. She had to have elegance and charisma and eye appeal and quality because quality is what's built America. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I don't care if you're talking about a car or if you're talking about a shop vac or if you're talking about uh, any tool. The ones that build, build them the best, they stay. Mm -hmm. The ones that imitate them and don't put quality in their whatever they're doing they don't stay well it's that the same thing was going to happen here if you took these does and and picked the chunky ones that that were a little butch looking and a little more like a caparta or a weather they call them a caparta and we call them a weather if they looked like a weather because they were chunky well that wasn't going to cut the cut the mustard these these does had to look extremely feminine and the bucks had to look like bucks mm -hmm. but only when they were two and three years old did those bucks start to look extremely masculine mm -hmm. and and we had to have great feet and legs because all of them didn't have great feet and legs they they sent us a bunch of them that had bad mouths you know the jawbone on the bottom didn't match with their uh, lip on top and that so we had to battle that and then we had some with bad udders we had to make sure we got rid of them and they still haven't done that you know the mm -hmm. They'd rather have the shape than to have something that can last. That's a, that's a sin, but that's how it is. We, we have too many goats that have too bad udders, and I don't really understand that because that just increases your labor by, I mean, exponentially it increases your labor when they oh, have bad sure. udders, and, and they're not doing what they're supposed to do because you've got to help them. First job is to be a mom. Yeah, that's, and that's so stupid when, when you don't put that priority first. Mm -hmm. And, of course, soundness is more important yet than even the femininity part. But 
as you see, if you go to any of these uh, weather shows now, they've thrown soundness out the window. Yeah, yeah they've totally ignored that to pretend like they have more muscle. And the sad thing is that this young bunch doesn't look at the old records. I mean, if they'll look back, the first weather that uh, they cut at Houston in the carcass contest with a three-inch eye came from this ranch right here. Mm -hmm. And I'd like them to look now and tell me how many three-inch eyes they've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah. And then when you open a, a, a champion's mouth and he's got two big teeth or four big teeth, well, then it's over. I mean, they're just, all they're doing is just kidding each other. Mm -hmm. But somehow they've managed to get, you know, within their group to do the judging and convince everybody that this is all okay. Well, it isn't okay. When the wheels fall off, they're going to fall off, and a bunch of them are going to take a real hard hit. Mm -hmm. They've either got to make them sound again and fix their hips and get them back right, or, you know, why would we mess with them? I mean, I've got about 70 does out there in the pasture, and every one of them is sound, and every one of them has small tits. And I'm just waiting on the day when they've all made up their mind that they got to get back to the real world, and then I'm going to sell bucks again. I'm going to sell them like hotcakes mm -hmm. because they have no other place to turn. Nobody's worried about it. Yeah. I think um, the, I mean, the weather guys are going in the direction of we're going to raise the ones that win. And if this kind wins, you know, you're just like capitalism. We're going to raise that kind, and we're going to worry about that stuff that those guys worry about. Where did you see the boar goats kind of start to lean that direction? Well, as soon as they put that, those myotonic goats into the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that did it right there. Drop the, the tails down there where their scrotum was supposed to be. That's where their tail is now. They're straightening their shoulder up front. They can't travel on either end, front or rear. Mm -hmm. And then their hip is so steep, they, I mean, there's no way to get any functionality out there. And the pelvic bone is the most important bone in the whole body of anything. Everything hinges off of that. You go down to the foot and the hind leg, and you go out to his nose from the front of that pelvis as you follow his spine. Everything hinges off the pelvic bone. Mm -hmm. And so if, if that thing isn't sitting in there at the right angle, Everything else can't work, can't function. What is the right angle of their pelvic bone? Well, well you know, if, if you look at a goat, his tail head, they can't be dead level. That's not, they were never supposed to be dead level. They are, that uh, where their pin bones is, it ought to be an inch or so lower than where their hook bone, I mean, their front of their pelvis is. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is it, that I say it can't be level is a goat is supposed to eat 50% of the time over his head. So he has to be able to rock back, get his hocks under him, and stand up and eat in a tree. And not eat one leaf, but eat 10 or 20 leaves before he comes back down to the ground. Well, if their hip is at a 45 degree angle to start with, the first thing is he can't even leap up there. He can't, he, he can't spring off his front feet and get up and down. And if he gets up and down, he's going to fall on his head. He's going to fall over backwards because he doesn't have the ability to flex and stay up there in that tree. So that's just a joke. We had a, we had a buck here a few years ago, and I called him Rimfire. And I wanted him to stay in the pen one day, and I, so I drove the pickup up in front of him. And he jumped over the hood 
of the pickup and landed on the other side and never touched anything. And now these billy goats that these kids have now, they, they can't even stand up on the hood. They can't, get their, <laughs> they can't get their front feet on the hood of the pickup, much less have run over there and jumped all the way over the front of that truck. That's a joke. And if you'll go to their house and they call the goats in, the last one to come in is a buck. He's in the back. He's so hobbled and so stiff and so screwed up, he can't come in. I mean, he's just damn lucky to get to the house, but all of them are raising him in a little trap or a little pen. They don't have him out here in a pasture. Well, they'd never live. If, if they threw him in a pasture, it'd be three days, and they wouldn't have to worry about it. They don't have to feed him. So they don't, they're not taxed. They don't have to do anything. So, you know, I guess they don't have to have good feet and legs. If all they got to do is lay in the corner. So I know we've, we've kind of talked about this before, and, and the way that you describe your deer and, and the way that God makes his livestock look when he's in charge, They're, I mean, they just become so much more athletic, hardier. I mean, just from what the feral hogs have turned into. Sure. I mean, just can we, do you, do you kind of incorporate some of that into your philosophy? And I, always think, I always think about it. Mm-hmm. I always think about it. I mean, look at the pictures that are in here. They're pictures of deer. They aren't pictures of some champion that we had somewhere, but they're pictures of animals that are functional and live on their own. And so I look at those things and I think about that and I say, hmm, isn't that something? And so when I'm seeing something in the pasture and I'm wondering, hmm, I wonder if if that's right. Well, all I got to do is go over there and sit in the deer blind for a little while and let those big bucks come in and study them. And then they'll tell you. And then if you think a whitetail's pretty good, then look at a mule deer. Now that's that that's where the Lord took it another level. Mm-hmm. But how did he do that? He mixed he mixed the deer that are in California with the whitetails that came from the east, and they and the propagation of those two together made the mule deer. So he's a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Well, naturally he ought to be the best one. Mm-hmm. And he is the best one. He is a super stud, the one in, in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming. Oh, they're just magnificent. Can you describe, you know, why God made those deer like that? Or, or... Yeah, it was survival. They had to be bigger. They had to be more robust in their body. Mm-hmm. They had to have more natural muscle. Their rib shape had to be more open and everything because they, one day they had a chance to eat a lot of food, and the next day that food was covered up with a foot of snow. And that foot of snow may stay the rest of winter. So they had to live off their body. So they had to be robust and tough, and they had to make a lot of progress while everything was good because they were going to use up that all during the wintertime. And then by the time winter was over and they had bred does and ran from the mountain lion and ran from the wolf, they were pretty thin. Mm-hmm. Now we've got to start over, but they were alive. That's the trick about feet and legs and their neck well how 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 would they make it up and down those mountains of colorado if you've ever been there and tried to hunt in that country oh i mean just exhaust you just in a little while and they're there every day so so you know if their feet and legs aren't any good that lion's done got them yeah yeah that's what my friends told me in africa said you don't have to worry about feet and legs said if they can't run and they ain't agile and they ain't good talking about their wild animals said we got some predators going to eat them as soon as he finds him 
He said natural selections made them all what they are because yeah. we got enough predators. I mean, even deer run uphill, too, and then they're you know kind of wild-fronted. I mean, <laughs> why is that, you think? Oh, there's no doubt. You know, I like to tell kids, why don't you look at a Disney movie when they got the wild horses in that movie? And that stallion that they're trying to sneak up on, you know, there's a lot of movies where they're trying to sneak up and they want to rope that black stallion. And what is, where is his head and neck? It's right on top of his shoulder and his head's moving around like it's on a swivel or something so he can see everything that's going on. And it's so simple. If he wasn't made perfect and he wasn't that athletic, another stallion would have already whipped his ass and taking his mares. So the best ones become the stallion of the herd because they are the most athletic and their skeleton is the truest and so they can fight harder and meaner and tougher than any of the rest of them. So if you want to know what the front end ought to look like in these animals, just get an old Disney movie out where they're going to rope Fury or one of those black stallions and look at how he looks when he throws his head up. You got a 45 degree angle to his shoulder. You got his neck coming up out of that. And then his head sitting up on top of there. And it all comes out of the top of their shoulder. Simple. Mm -hmm. why, make it, why make it so hard to try to figure out what they ought to look like when the Lord already painted you a picture of what they look like? Mm -hmm. And all you got to do is think about that. And that's, that's one thing. I mean, we've made the dopper sheep the same way. They want to tell us in Africa and and in Australia as well, that they got to have their head and neck coming sort of out of their shoulder. Forward. Yeah, forward. And that's baloney. <laughs> that's just pure D baloney. The good ones, the good females on this place, when they jerk their head up, it's just like that. I mean, it's right up on top of their shoulder. Yeah. And they can travel. They can move around. They can run over you in the alley, I mean, and knock you down. They won't stop. Those things are strong. Yeah, there's, there's no looking back with them. And that is because we have them so athletically designed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so where did the Dorpers start for you? Did you kind of what year did you bring those over? No, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't bring them. I, I couldn't find any that we could bring at the time because we were so busy with the boar goats that I liked, and so other people have imported them. And I didn't like anything that I saw originally. That's why I didn't have any for a long. I mean, for ten years I didn't have any. Well, maybe fifteen years I didn't have any. And uh, then I got some hair sheep here, which were no telling what. They were crosses. And I put them over here across the road and here in one of the pastures because of weeds. I got them because I sprayed weeds one year. And when I looked at the bill for spraying the weeds, I thought, well, if you ain't a dumb bastard, I said, you spend that kind of money to spray weeds when you could have bought used that money and bought sheep and let them eat the weeds and got a paycheck when they had lambs. So I never did that foolishness again. And I bought 200 head of ewes, put 100 over there and 100 here. So I had commercial ewes. I borrowed the rams. I didn't even buy any rams. I borrowed them. And I raised lambs for several years. I just noticed how good they were for my ranch. Mm -hmm controlling the weeds and letting the sheep and the cattle eat the, I mean, let the goats and the cattle eat the rest. And so then I saw a little ram at, at San Angelo at the stock show. 
And now he was intriguing. So I told a friend of mine, if you'll go make a deal and buy that ram, I'll pay for him and we'll use him together. So he went and made a deal and I bought that ram and now I had a registered ram and I had no registered use. Well, that's not very clever. That's not, right, yeah. that's not very clever. So <clears throat> I started going. I went to every show and sale that I that they advertised, and I bought one here and I bought one there, and I never could find very many that I liked. But I I made sure that they were very feminine, very elegant, real good in their feet and legs, and they'd match this little ram. So that's how I started. Then Preston had those black ones, the true dopper, and I said, well, I ought to have a few of those. So I bought me a few of those used one at a time, and I used his rams. I don't know how long either. I, I had them four or five years before I ever bought a ram because I couldn't find a ram I liked. And uh, finally, I did buy a dopper ram that was really good. Called him Whiskers because he was too white he had a white mouth and white came over top of his head so the people that are worried about color he wouldn't have suited them very much well i couldn't give a damn about color i told preston i don't care if he's pink polka dotted i said that is a great sheep and i said if you like him i'll buy him and we'll both use him so he picked him out in five seconds. He came running out from behind this barn where he was, and he said, I hope you like that white-lipped one. I said, yeah, that's the one I like, so I bought him. And uh, it's a good thing I did because this whole industry was desperate for some good black rams, like they're desperate for all good rams right now. And so he really helped the whole, whole bunch, and then uh, we made 466 out of him. And I sold half of him to Sharon Holman. And I, I know she's done really good with him. And the people that have got the 466s are happy. So There you go. Yeah. But it all happened because I bought that white-lipped ram and didn't worry about color but worried about quality. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I hate to even talk about color. I'm only going to talk about it for a moment. And then I'm not going to talk about it anymore because it's stupid. You know, you got to have great livestock great livestock beget more great livestock sorry ones just make things sorrier you can't worry about fancy points like color when you're trying to make good animals that that's that's a luxury when you have so many that you don't know what else to do you can cull on color but i so far in the united states i haven't met anybody that that's got that many good ones mm -hmm. So that that you can just ignore that, you got to worry about quality. Exactly. And uh, so that's. that's I mean, I'm just, I'm just blessed I bought him. Yeah. I'm I'm glad I bought him. Preston's glad he bought him because he's got a stud ram out of him that he uses, that he calls prototype, and so. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of change the subject and, and kind of get into genetics a little bit and breeding systems and your philosophy on I'd say line breeding, whether phenotypically or just you know breeding for traits and and, and you know. Well, that. I I I am not opposed any day to buy a new stud ram. Mm -hmm. 
if I saw him in a picture, if I saw him in Canada or anywhere, any of the states, and I thought I needed him, I'd buy him. Mm -hmm. But currently, I can't find one I want to buy that I'd waste my money on. So I stay home and I do what I've been doing, and that's just I pick the best ram of that season and I keep him, or I keep half of him and sell half, and uh, then I use him when it's time. And uh, that that's that's because I trust what I've put in so far. Yeah. The livestock that I've used so far, uh, putting them together, I trust. When I had Captain, the last time we traced one of those does, she was 28 times back to him. Wow. And uh, 19 times back to uh, back to Oscar, and about eight times back to uh, one of the other bucks. Mm -hmm. So. I think that was okay, and the reason it all worked is because I didn't, I I didn't uh, worry about anything except making them good, and I think that's why it could work. And uh, I never counted, never looked, never thought about it much. Uh, if I if I could find one I liked, I'd buy him. I'd try him a little bit, and then I'd get rid of him, and then I'd get another one I'd try him a little bit and I'd get rid of him but ultimately the good ones all came from what we did here at home mm -hmm. but I wouldn't advocate that to anybody else unless they know that the female that they're keeping that buck out of or that ram is a killer mm -hmm. that the doe that they come from has to be exceptional and too many people want to keep a ram or a buck already out of their deal, and they don't have an exceptional female. Well, they're dead in the water. Mm -hmm. They're a goner. Yeah, I don't care what that baby looks like. It isn't going to work mm -hmm. because it isn't backed by those exceptional females that go back two, three, four, five generations, and you know all about the background of them. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't... I mean, I'll see these people, and they'll get into business, and they'll buy a stud ram, and then they keep a son of him right away, and <laughs> none of them are any good. Well, they're, they're goners. Mm -hmm. They're goners. Yeah. So how do you go about making improvements in your herd? Do you breed, you know, for pieces, or do you just incorporate those good genetic lines and just mass produce them, or, or you know, this buck will fix your issues? Or? Like I said, I keep a few of those rams, and I keep an interest in different rams. And then if I see five ewes that, let's say, they, I really like them and they aren't big enough. Well, I know I sold half interest in this ram that's skeletally pretty large. And he won't, he won't take away from those ewes, but he might make them bigger. Well, I'll, go bar, I'll bar him back and put him with those five ewes and just breed them. I don't get him back and then throw 25 with him because he doesn't match those 25. And uh, so I'll use them to change. And, and, and so I'm looking at them phenotypically because I'm not worried about them genetically because they got all my lines. So I don't think about the genetic side of it. And sometimes, I mean, I'll have him in there with his mother 
I mean, there's a prime example of that up at the barn right now. Well, I've got a ram that's really exceptional in skeletal dimension. And I've got him in there with his mama. His mama's not a real big. Uh, she's average in size. And I've got him in there with right now because I want to test those genetics. And I'm going to find out if there's an ambush in there by breeding him back to his mother. I mean, find out what's bad about it, what could really be in there that might crop out three years from now. Mm -hmm. I want to know it right now. And then if I don't like what happens, then I won't have to worry about it. I will never use him or her again. There'll be history mm -hmm. because it has to come from both sides. So that's just a, a good way to test a sire, mm -hmm. breeding him back to his mama. And, of course, if you buy that buck, well, then you don't get that privilege. But he's going to have daughters in a year, and you can breed him to one or two of those daughters, which he needs to be or you think he needs to be bred to. And then if something bad comes out, all of them go all of them go all his daughters and him they hit the trail so you know that's that's just uh that's letting them tell you what you need to do mm -hmm. you don't have to be too damn smart you get something out of that that ain't no good well adios so kind of a different kind of question let's talk about correlating different aspects of their skeleton and, and what they mean like is there can you correlate things from their skull shape and size to the rest of their skeleton? Or? Well, I mean, when I taught those kids, I'd always take some skulls and pelvic bones out of skeletons that were just laying around the ranch. One of them might be a deer that was hung in the fence. One of them might be an old sow that uh, died, you know, for whatever reason. And one of them might be uh, a goat. And I would take and lay that pelvis down and turn that skull upside down and set it in that pelvic bone. And then if you do that, they're exactly the same length. The skull and the pelvic bone are exactly the same length. And then if you look at how open it was in the back end of that pelvis, you'll notice that the skull has a great big top or cranium to the top of his skull. And so it made a lot more sense to look at their skull than it did to the pelvic bone because that's covered in muscle, hide, hair. A lot of camouflage is up there. If you've ever cut all the muscle off of that pelvic bone when a deer is hanging up, there is a lot of muscle hiding that pelvic bone. There ain't a damn thing hiding that skull. Mm -hmm. Nothing. So it's real easy. I mean, I, I tell ryan you know he coaches and he's really good at it but i tell him all the time i said <clears throat> when you look at their skull from their pole to their eyes is one one length and then it ought to be twice that far from their eye to the end of their nose that's that's a, one of the first things i look at the next thing i look at is i want their eyes very far apart i want a great big eye so I know that socket is big. And then on top of their head, I want it to be almost as wide at the top of their head as it is between their eyes so that I know there's a huge opening up there on top. Then I don't have to worry about kidding problems. I don't have to worry about are they going to be able to birth those babies on their own? Well, sure they are. I, I can already see that just looking at the top of their skull. 
And looking at how big that eye opening is, I, I know that pelvis has all the room it needs to have a baby come out. I just look at their head and figure that out. I don't make it complicated, and that's what I told those kids. I said, if you get in a class and two of them are confusing you, then remember what I told you about skeleton. Don't look at anything but their heads. Tell me which one of them has the best head, and you put that one ahead of the other one. And if the officials don't see it that way, well, that's too bad. I just want you to see what's real, yeah. and we'll go from there. And then, I mean, I told you early on, I mean, the pelvic bone is the answer to the whole skeleton because if it doesn't have the right angle, then, then the femur bone doesn't come off at the right angle, then you don't go back to the hock at the right angle. You don't come down to the ground at the right angle. All of the, that's the cushion, that's the joints. A car has shock absorbers and so does an animal. And, and his shock absorber are the angulation of the way the bones hook together. You know, a prime example right now in this goat and sheep world is that too many of them tell me that the foot ought to be right under the cannon bone. You know, you ought to come right down in that foot. That pastor needs to be straight underneath there. And I said, now look, I said, if you go to church and you believe in the, in the Lord's infamous wisdom, why did the Lord not put that foot straight down under the cannon bone and we don't have a pastor? It, mm -hmm. if, if why he, did it not just attach to the bottom of, their of, the, bone? of yeah. the cannon bone? He, if he would have done that, if that's the way they were supposed to be made, that's how it would be. If the foot was supposed to be right under the cannon bone, that'd be one straight line. But he put the pastern in there because that's one other part of the shock absorber that they have in their hock and that they have where the femur bone hooks up and, and so on. All of that hinges, and then they walk along like this, and they don't hurt, and they don't ache, and they don't feel like I do right now. Mm -hmm. And so everything is good. They can run from lions and dogs. Anything, anything, yeah. And, and I told him, I said, now, kids, if you don't understand that, go to a good horseman, somebody that has a good roping horse. I'm not talking about one of these feed and lead suckers, but I'm talking about somebody that ropes and, and puts the pressure on that horse every day. Every day he's practicing or he's at a big-time rodeo playing for big money. And ask him if he wants that foot right down under the cannon bone. And then pick up the foot and look and see that he cut the frog off, he cut the heel off, and that, that, he, that toe is much longer in front than it is back there at the heel to get that slope in that pastern and make sure it's there so that he does not make that horse sore and that that horse is comfortable and that when he takes a step, it doesn't jar right up through his backbone while he's riding. I said, you know, so, so don't talk to another sheep man or another goat man. Go talk to a horse man and ask him how he wants that pastern on that horse. Mm -hmm. And then you'll learn something because he doesn't even know why you asked the question. And so a prime example of what's happened in the feet and legs and where people understand, look at all the hogs now are on, on cement. 
and all the dairy cattle are on cement. And tell me who isn't worried about feet and legs as much as anybody today as the, what I call the good commercial man in the hogs and that dairyman who sees his cows either two or three times a day more than any of us others in livestock the dairyman sees his cow every morning and every evening and if he milks three times a day he sees her three times and find a bad-footed one in there and find me one that has her foot under her cannon bone you ain't gonna find one you i mean i don't care if he milks a thousand or three thousand cows you ain't gonna find one they're sound they have to be as soon as they aren't sound they're not in their spot they don't come in the barn at the right place in the right time and she's history pretty simple pretty simple so norman i got one last question for you and this is kind of very open what is the most athletic animal that god created whole planet to you well I might have to think think oh I know no I I, I don't have to think about it it's it's the polar bear without a doubt in my mind it's the polar bear because if you take a gander at him and you watch him on National Geographic and he's living on ice <laughs> he is making his living where I don't even want to I don't even want to go visit mm -hmm. and he's making his living there and he's got a butt as big as a rhinoceros He's got humongous feet, He's, and yet his shoulders blend right into his rib cage, and his belly looks like a tub, and his neck is three feet long, and his head sitting out on the end of that, so that he is agile and quick, and he can look, and he can think, and he can do anything he wants to. Yeah, there's nothing, nothing was ever designed like that. And you got to think about it. If he wasn't designed so cleverly, he couldn't survive. There wouldn't be a damn polar bear anywhere. They, they'd be in those uh, prehistoric museums yeah. that we have. The Museum of Natural History, it'd have a polar bear in it because we wouldn't have any. But he's made so perfect that he can hunt a seal through a hole in the ice. He can dive in the water and go get something, and he can come up and eat it. I mean, he can he can swim he can swim like a rocket. It's just unbelievable what what they are. So the yeah, I don't. I had to think a minute. I, I see the picture in my mind, and then I have to think about it till I can see the picture. But it's a polar bear. Nothing compares. There, no, there's nothing like it. And tell me where his feet are. His hind feet are forward of his of his cannon bone. Flex. He's got so much flexibility, mm -hmm. and you see him on those hunting shows, and they turn, they turn a whole set of sled dogs loose to chase this bear to corner him, so they can get up there and shoot him with a bow and arrow or something. And that polar bear runs for five miles before them dogs catch up. Well, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an athlete. Yeah, he's been out there all day, and them. them Sled dogs, they've been messing around. You know, they slept all night, and this guy's been hunting for food all night, and now it's, he's got the chase on, and he just runs their butt off. So, pretty exciting. Beautiful creation. Oh. Yeah, anytime I'm bored, I just look at one of them and think, well, now, how could I get my animals close 
to looking like that. So I, I mean, I think we got, I think we got some of these white dauber sheep. Close, close. I didn't say they looked like one, but they're getting close because we got that big butt in the back end. We got their shoulders right. They're laying in on that big rib. That rib's open, and their necks are very long. They got a lot of look about them. Uh, I think we're getting closer to that. Yeah. It's exciting. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I I can tell you, you know, we're 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 in the infamous infancy of our red angus program and of course you have to wait so much longer because the genetic intervals are longer but there are huge challenges in that breed and so it just gives me more incentive to try to fix some of those things and um, yeah it's 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 exciting uh, but i think I think you have to have a picture in your mind of what you want all these good animals to look like. I don't think there's one bit of difference between a good cow, a good dopper sheep, a good boar goat, or a good sow. They're in different wrappers, but the things that make f the females great is all the same. The biggest problem I see today in our in our livestock industry is first we don't have any real stockmen left we don't have enough kids who are raised on a ranch who've seen what happens when they're not sound who've seen what happens when they can't have their babies by themselves who have seen what happens when that cow has too big a tits that we they don't have the practical knowledge to go along with what they've been taught while they've been at school and so on, uh, or in the 4-H program and so on. They, they can't blend the two together because they don't have that practical knowledge. And so we have people that want to be in, let's say they want to be in the dopper business or the white doppers. Well, they go, to a, they go to a class and they get certified and they think they're ready to be in the business. Or we get a kid that's fresh out of college and he's been a stud in the judging team world. And he thinks he's ready to go have his own farm. And all of them are going to go broke. But if they would just take people along with them that have the practical knowledge and the practical experience, then they wouldn't buy the wrong ones. They'd buy the right ones that they could afford. They'd buy the right ones. And then their program would be going uphill. But the hell, they'll jump out there, and, they, and the first thing they want to do is buy the champion. Well, the champion might be, and he might not be. And most of the time, he ain't. So they need to take, I don't care what, the, they, let's say they want to go to a sheep show, and there's no sheep men that live around them. So what? Go get the best cow man you know that lives around you and take him with you. Mm -hmm. Or if you've got a guy that's a stud in the hog world, take him along. I don't care, but take somebody that's 40 years old and that has the practical experience to go along with the learn, book learn knowledge and take him along so you don't make the same. He ain't going to let you make the mistakes he made. Yeah. That's the best thing about it. Maybe he can't tell you what to do. He can damn sure tell you what not to do. Yeah. And you can't have so much pride that you're afraid to ask for help. 
I mean, I think back to when I, when my wife and I got started, and and we got, I liked hogs, and I still like them, and uh, we bought a, some boars and sows and got started. But my, the best thing was I had a man there that was one of the best Duroc men in the whole United States. And I guess we ate 100 meals at his house in the first three years while I was county agent there. And I'd help him feed hogs. I'd help him breed sows. I'd do anything that he wanted to do so that I could learn. So I could learn and get better. And so that pretty soon when I got a little older, I could help somebody else. I'm not sure when I was real young I helped anybody other than motivate them, but my knowledge got better as I had more experience. Spent my own money for things that weren't no good. And then I soon learned, you know, you, you better get you a little help. Definitely. Well, Norman, thanks for sitting down with me and, and talking. This has been great. There's so much knowledge and stuff. That's, that's going to be out there. I think people are going to love it. I hope so. Well, there it was. Uh, I hope you guys liked it and, and saw how you know extraordinary that guy's brain is and, and the way that he looks at stock. Um, the way that I read it is he is trying to make God proud with the livestock that he's created. And when he needs advice, you know, doesn't always ask the people around him, but he goes and studies the masterpieces God has already created. And I, you know, it was just such a pleasure to sit down with Norman. He is unlike any other stockman I've ever encountered. Uh, but that's all we've got for you guys this week. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Legendary Mindset with Jake P, and our Instagram page, Legend Legendary Mindset Pod, for more content every week.